Thank you so much, Amy, for sharing with us the talents God has given you to bring honor and glory to him. It is our privilege today to have Seth and Amy Myers with us. Seth and Amy are missionaries sent out by Bethel Baptist Church here in Schaumburg to South Africa, and they have served faithfully for 18 years representing this church in that nation telling people about the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. And Seth is going to open God's word to us this morning from the book of Revelation, and I so look forward to hearing that. Revelation is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And um, so before Seth comes, let's pray and plead with God to speak. Father, We are about to open the truth that we hold in our hands, preserved supernaturally by you, so that through these pages we may come to know you. We're reminded in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, Produce faith in our hearts this morning, I pray, as we hear what you have spoken, what you have promised is going to come. And through all of it, point us to the one in whom we have hope, your one and only son, Jesus. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to love. Give us minds to understand and hands and feet to obey. That Jesus Christ may be all in all through us. In his name I pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4. It's a joy to be with you today, back at the church that sent us out 18 years ago on this day that I arrived in Africa. Grateful for your constant prayer and support of us. We'll be here in the week and it would be our joy to meet with you. Revelation chapter 4. Verse 1, after this, stop. The words to which I would like to draw your attention this morning begin nearly every chapter of this book. After this, or later on we'll see, then I saw. These words are almost always used in the original when it is telling a story where one event follows the next. Which is why I told you already that each chapter nearly opens with one of those phrases. The book is going to give us a story. For our purposes, it will begin in chapter 4 today. And in chapter 4, he begins by saying, after this, after these things... You'll see it again listed in other places in the book if you're looking at either the first or the second verse throughout the book. 
And it's in many other places. Over 40 times you'll find after this or then I saw. And I saw. What does he see? With the Lord's help, I'd like to show you what John saw, recognizing that you've already had prolonged meditation on this book on Wednesday nights. But as the pastor mentioned, I believe there's much good in Revelation for us, and particularly regarding our affections. Those things that are not directly under our power. We cannot say, love this, and have our loves obey. We cannot say fear this and have our fears obey. We cannot say hate this and have our anger obey. But our Lord Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows because he loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. And the great commandment above all is to love the Lord your God. How can you obey the great commandment when it is not directly in your power to touch affections? Well, the book of Revelation is one of the divine cures for that difficulty. Because Revelation will present itself in such a way that it speaks to the soul and it communicates in a way that can, if we do what the book says, grow so that we will love the Lord our God with all our hearts. And we've already begun, so let's keep going. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, After this I looked, behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be after this. Again, there it is. It's twice in verse 1. After this, after this. Chapter 4 is the story of God's throne room. His throne is introduced before he is. Chapter 5, look down at verse 1. What are the first words? Depending on your translation, then I saw, and I saw, now I saw. That's one of those markers I just told you about. It's going to show a chronological sequence, one event after another. And for the most part, this book is a chronological sequence. There are some pauses, but it it is those phrases that are the clearest indicator What we have in the book of Revelation, when John is on the Isle of Patmos and he speaks to us, the clearest indication that we have in front of us, a narrative, a chronological narrative, is this connecting string throughout. After this, and I saw. In fact, if you'll search those phrases in the original, you'll find that it's always used that way. In narrative sequences where one event is following in time another event. If you go back to the Old Testament, remember, what language is the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. But the the Hebrew is translated into Greek. And if you'll go back to the Greek version, you'll find these same phrases after this, and then I saw, again used, showing narrative flow. I want to show you the story that is in this wonderful book. And if you have ever flirted with the idea that perhaps this book is is repeating, it's a cycle. Maybe you've been taught that the book begins and tells the story and then comes back to the beginning and tells the story and then does it again repeatedly. If you've ever heard that, 
I'd like you to pay special attention to those phrases that I'm calling out to your attention. I'd like you to take your pen out, which you always bring to church with you, and I'd like you to start circling these phrases because you're marking in your Bible so that you won't forget it. Chapter 4 is the throne room of God. Chapter 5, the first words, and I saw. Again, 5 verse 2, and I saw. Chapter 5 verse 11, and I saw. (coughs) Or an equivalent, depending on your translation. In chapter 5, what do we have? But the introduction of the Lamb of God and the seal judgments. Chapter 6 and 7, 6 are the seal judgments. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw. Have you ever numbered the seal judgments? Just gone right on the outside of your Bible and put numbers in the margin? You can do that and you'll find them in the future. Don't do that while I'm preaching because I'm going to move on. Chapter 6 of the seal judgments, most of them. Chapter 7, look at it. Chapter 7, verse 2. And I saw. It's going to number these 144,000. Again, some commentators and some teachers will say, this is a repetition. It's going back to the beginning and telling the story again. He's just, he's constant. This is what they will say. He's, John, constantly retelling the same story. And why would he use, as one among many arguments, why would he use this repeating phrase? Then I saw in chapter 7, verse 2, the choosing of these 144,000. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. Where are they? In verse 9. They're standing before the throne. Where are we told that they are in the Jehovah's Witness watchtower? We are told that the great multitude is on the earth. Chapter 7, verse 9 does not support that doctrine. But notice again in verse 9. It says says there is a great multitude and then there's a description and that description is never used of the damned in hell. It is a number that no man can count. There will be someday a number uncountable before the throne from every tribe and including the Tsongas and the Vendas and the Shonas and the Polish from Chicago. Chapter 7 verse 9 begins this description of heaven. Then he saw heaven. Chapter 8 is the trumpet judgments. Look at chapter 8 verse 2. And I saw. It's the trumpet judgments. You'll want to mark those down. Chapter 9, the trumpet judgments again. Chapters 10 and 11 are the angels of God. Angel is a key term in Revelation. It's used constantly. These glorious angels. There's much to learn about angels. I had the joy of teaching 22 sermons on the doctrine of humility at our English church plant. I hope I learned to live those doctrines. But one of the messages was on the humility of angels. Have you ever noticed what angels are described as and how they live and move and have their being? Angels are all through the book of Revelation. You might want to come back and circle that in a different color pen. Mine's brown because I'd already used green and red and blue. 
But you'll find angels constantly throughout this book. In chapter 10, we have angels. In chapter 11, we have angels and these two witnesses. Chapter 12, we do have a retelling of the whole story in chapter 12. It begins with chapter 12, verse 1, there appeared. It's a different introductory phrase, not the same one. Oh, he's looking now at a vision that he had seen in contrast to the previous visions. Chapter 12 is retelling of the story. And that is, chapter 12 is like Acts chapter 15. Basically, the Presbyterian denomination depends on Acts chapter 15. And Acts chapter 12, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 12 is one of the vital legs on which amillennialism must interpret Revelation. Chapter 12 is the story of Israel specially used by God to bring forth the Messiah, hated and despised by Satan. Notice that the world always hates what God always has loved. Harry Baltima from Michigan places correct emphasis on the doctrine of Israelology when he reminds us that those things God loves, the world hates. Again, this book is here to teach us our affections. In this book, Revelation, we have these metaphors laid out because metaphor speaks to the mind and the heart in an effective way. Why is Psalms filled with imagery? Why is it in poetry? In the same fashion, we have Revelation's use of these images. Chapter 13 introduces the beast, the dragon, the enemies of God. Chapter 13, you see chapter 13, verse 1, and I saw, the word saw might be moved down a little bit in the text, but it's still in the original. It's two words right at the beginning. And I saw, then I saw, the beast is introduced, the enemies of Christ. Chapter 14, judgment on the earth. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. And I saw, then I saw. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw, it's the bold judgments. Chapter 15 and 16 are the bold judgments. Chapter 17 and 18 moves, it changes now. What are we doing in chapter 17? In chapter 17, verse 3, then... I saw. What did he see? The harsh language of the Bible reminds us again that we are dealing with great realities. That we have in front of us heaven and hell, life and death, because the Bible says it is a great whore, a harlot. Choosing the most despised or the most despicable of sins and lifestyles, taking what is most delicate and beautiful and degrading it. The Bible chooses that most degraded of all images to say, for the next two chapters, I want you to think that way. Why? Because it's training our affections to hate correctly. How do we learn to hate? But by the images God has given us. He is a rock. He is a fortress. He is a song. And hear what we ought to to turn from is this great whore, this harlot. In fact, look at chapter 18, verse 3 and 4. 
Chapter 18 begins with, after these things. That was the phrase from chapter 4. I told you there was two phrases. You didn't forget them, did you? Of course you didn't, because you're marking them at every time. Chapter 18, verse 1, after these things. It's a narrative. We're moving right along. But look down in verse number 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. That you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. Why? Her sins have reached unto heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. God is angry and he commands his people to come out. Godly Christians, come out from that which is odious. (coughs) Excuse me, to God. Godly Christians hate what God hates. They train themselves to love and to hate according to their master. They train themselves to be angry when they ought to be angry, to be silent when they ought to be silent, to be sad when they should be sad, and to laugh when they should laugh because he who sits in the heavens does laugh. In chapter 18 and 17, you may be helped in interpreting this if you'll put an E or a P or an R in the margins of your Bible, whenever you come across in chapter 17 and 18, which you're going to read this afternoon today, after you're done with Acts 13 to 21, and you just put an E anytime you find a reference to economic activity. That make sense? You're going to find it numerous times. You put a P anytime you find a reference to what? Political activity. And an R, anytime you find a reference to religious activity in chapters 17 and 18 describing this evil woman. What you'll find is that you're going to have the EPA, the EPR constantly referenced. Because this great harlot is an economic and a political and a religious system. We would call it the world. In Revelation... It is the final form of this one world government and religion. It is the final ecumenical blending. It's the molding together of every viewpoint. It's the diversity that is really not diverse at all. It's so diverse it won't allow Christianity. It's so tolerant you can't disagree. That's what we see in chapters 17 and 18. And our Lord says, come out of her. Have nothing to do with this. She will be destroyed. When this one world government suffers very badly. At the end of the section, verse 23, it says, chapter 18, verse 23. The light of a candle will shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth. For by thy sorceries were how many nations deceived. There are 16 universal references in this book overthrowing post-millennialism. We attempted to push amillennialism into the corner. Now let me make this comment. The word all, when found in the book of Revelation, especially describing nations, all nations, every nation, cannot be reconciled with the doctrine of post-millennialism. That is the doctrine that these prophecies were fulfilled already 2,000 years ago in 70 AD. Well, then how were all the nations deceived at that point? Later we'll see all the nations are redeemed. 
How are all the nations redeemed and all the nations deceived back then in 70 AD? This would be a requirement for that doctrinal position. And it fails to measure up to the grammar. Don't get swept away with tangential arguments for a particular doctrinal position. Let the grammar keep you in control. Let the actual words that are there be so strong to you that you can't be moved off. Let your leash be very short between the tree and the dog, the word and the meaning. When you stretch the word and the meaning, when you lengthen that leash, you have the possibility for great error, which is why I've never heard of a premillennialist who doubted the literal fires of hell. In chapter 18, we have the destruction of this evil system. And now we begin the message. Chapter 19, verse 1. And after these things, there it is again, after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. Where, the, where is this great group again? It's in heaven. Where were they in chapter 7? In heaven. Giving us hints at the pre-tribulation rapture of the saints. They're in heaven. And what do they say? It's only found in the book of Revelation. Alleluia. What are they singing about? Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Don't read verse 2 yet. You tell me what are they singing about? What just happened in our narrative flow? They're singing a very negative song. We ought not be negative, we are told. Oh, really? These people sing about really negative stuff. Look at verse number two. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornications, and has avenged the blood of, the, of his servants at her hand. They're singing that. Verse 3, let's get to the chorus. Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. They sing about things that are very heavy. I wonder what kind of key they're in. Well, I know because it tells us in verse number 5, and a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him both small and great. Verse 6, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Verse 7, Let us be sad. No! There's a rejoicing a mixed with their fearing, mixed with their negative song. This is Christianity. We live in a complex world. Don't you? Aren't your children complex? You thought, I raised you and they're... We live in a place where we need to be rejoicing and weeping. When we come to the Lord's table, where do we see it better? Are you supposed to look around and say, hey, he's taking the Lord's table with me. This is a celebration. Or is your head supposed to be bowed saying, it was my sins that put him on the cross? And the answer is both. I can't do that. That's what it means to be strong in the Lord. That's one of the many meanings. To be strong in the Lord is to have our affections tuned like a violin his way. And our affections cannot be tuned his way unless we are seeing the images his way, which is why a movie of Revelation can't work. A book is a stoppy. 
But a movie says keep going. But the stoppy, that is the book, the words let you pause and think and feel until you get the feeling just the way the author had intended it. In verses 5 and 6, they are singing. But in verse 7, we have the marriage of the Lamb. Let us be glad and rejoice. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. There is great joy at the union of Christ and his people. True or false? If you're a believer in Jesus, you are united to Christ. True or false? True or false? You have not yet been united to the lamb in the marriage feast. True. There is a way in which we are united to Christ bound by baptism in the spirit. As pastor mentioned to me before the service, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, baptized into one body. But there is a sense in which we await the full unity, the full uniting glory. As Dante pictures in the, in the divine comedy, which just means a happy ending, there are three sections to that poem. One is inferno, one is purgatory, and the final one is the paradise, which my wife urged me to read last year, the 700th anniversary since he wrote it. And in that final section, in the paradise, he is united to God, but as he ascends one level after another into the glory of God, He can't go higher until grace comes and makes his eyes able to see the light or able to rise more quickly because the angels were moving too fast for him. He could neither keep pace with them nor could he see them. Somehow that poet caught a glimpse of what's happening here in the marriage feast. We are bound to Christ, but oh, what will it be like when we are bound to Christ? In verse 8, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of Christ. What? Have I already done that too many times? Are you not surprised anymore? This can't be because we believe in the doctrine of justification by faith. We believe that we're saved by faith alone. We've heard it read here. We've but we must make room for all the revelation of God. Here it is that the saints will be clothed in their righteous deeds. And we get a hint in verse 7 when it says, His wife has made herself ready. Who's the subject of that verb in verse 7? It's the wife. That sounds like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the prayer that Paul tells us to pray. And he says, pray that you would be counted worthy of his calling. Pray that I would be counted worthy. I don't have to pray that. I've been justified and I am worthy. There is some complexity in here. I heard a question and answer session one time of, with John MacArthur. And they asked him some question Like, I'm going to paraphrase it, so if you've seen this clip too, but the the point is the same at the end. Something like, on what positions have you changed since you've been ministering over 50 years or whatever it was, 45 or something? He said, well, I'm growing all the time, but I have so much to learn. And then he made this phrase. He used this phrase. I don't even understand how sanctification works. Do you feel that way? 
Do you feel one day like you're justified by faith, but then you honestly look at your sin the next day and say, I've been fighting with this thing for 12 years. Well, you must not stop fighting with it. And you must not stop believing. You've got to do them both. Which is why John Bunyan pictures it so beautifully and memorably in the Holy War, the greatest of his allegories. When he says about halfway through, when man's soul, do you know this story? Uh, John Bunyan, he, he's the guy who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote a great book too. You should go home this afternoon and buy it from Amazon just after you finish Revelation 17 and 18. Mark down the EPRs. The Holy War is a great allegory. It's a fun book. And there's a children's version too that all my kids have read because I've got a fantastic wife. In, in the Holy War, John Bunyan imagines that our souls are like towns. And he says there's the story of this town called Man's Soul. And it has a high wall and there's five gates. Eye gate, ear gate, nose gate, mouth gate, feelings gate. And once upon a time, this giant disguised himself, known as Diabolos, and he came with an old man named Mr. Unbelief, and they tricked the town into opening because the doors can't open from the outside. They only open from the inside. But the giant tricked them, and they opened the doors, and in he came. The next half of the book tells how bad the giant made it until Prince Emmanuel, far away in heaven, heard of it, and there was a council of three, and they sent Prince Emmanuel... And he comes and he says, open the gates. And they won't open the gates. And the gates that don't open except from the inside, Prince Emmanuel breaks them open. And then when he comes inside and takes possession of the town and kicks out the giant whom he doesn't kill, he drags behind his chariot because John Bunyan had read Colossians chapter 2. Then, the, then he has all the people go through the town and he says, go through the town and take any descendant of Diabolos and bring him here. And they get 13 of these people and they draw them before the judge and the judge listens to them and they condemn all 13 of these sinners, like uh, Mr. Hate Good and Mr. No Truth and Mr. Um, Gossip and Mr. Angry and these kind of things. These are the 13 criminals they get and they're going to kill all of these criminals there at the court in Mansoul. And this is the most brilliant, uh, maybe the best part in the book. It's so good though. When they go to kill the criminals, they're all condemned to die. Prince Emmanuel says, I have just conquered this town and I want to see if you are my worthy subjects. So while I watch, I want you to put them to death. Does that sound biblical? Romans 8, 13, kill all your sins. So they have to go and take these sins and kill them. But the book's not done yet because when they're grabbing the guys, John Bunyan writes, some of the, some of these criminals were so strong, they were shaking off four and five men of Mansoul and they were threatening to get free until Mansoul called out for help. And suddenly Prince Emmanuel sent help and put his hands on their hands so they could put every one of them to death. Is that not beautiful? I don't know how to say that except in prose, except in some kind of fiction. But that's it. That's what's happening here. You see, we're justified by the active obedience of Christ obeying all the laws. And we're justified by his passive obedience. For 30 30 years, he obeyed all, 33 years, he obeyed all the laws. But then for one section of time on one afternoon, he passively laid down his wrists as the blood came out. And he passively obeyed. And the passive and the active is imputed to that man by faith. But there's more to the story because the wife has to make herself ready. 
And she's clothed in fine linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. In verse 9, there's a blessing that comes. That is the marriage feast of the Lamb. But it goes on in verse 11, and I saw, then I saw, heaven is opened, and a white horse And the one who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he is clothed with a garment dipped in blood. Isaiah 63 calls it the blood of his enemies. Because this passage is a reference to Isaiah 63. One of the six great passages explaining the wrath and anger of God. There is a popular book going around today. It's being sent out, made popular by Crossway, sending copies of the book around to churches, and it's called Gentle and Lowly. And in the first chapter of that book, it argues that Jesus' character is gentle because in Matthew chapter 11, he says, I am meek. Why didn't they pick Revelation 19 and say, I am fierce? Or why not pick another passage and say, I am powerful? Let us guard against the the, the pull of our own flesh that wants to say, let me find an easy way to take the God of the universe and pull him down in an understandable way. He's not a tame lion. He's too great and too big. He is gentle. Think much of that. Pray to him because of his gentleness. Pray that God would make you gentle, that you fathers would not provoke your children to wrath, but he is much more than that. He comes back on a white horse and his garment is dipped in the blood of his enemies and he will have no mercy at that day. The gentleness is covered the way the wrath had been covered and now it's time for the wrath to show itself and he will trample on the blood of his enemies And in verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and he will conquer the nations. Though the armies in heaven follow him, they do nothing but watch and honor him. As often happens in scripture, when the armies of heaven gather together, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 6, when an invisible army of flaming angels are watching the town, God does it by himself. And consistently, even at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of the millennium, in chapter 20, verse 10, which we may or may not get to just now, Even then, it is God who destroys his enemies. It's as if he calls us together and says, I want you to fight with your sin, but at the end of all things, I do it myself. I take honor and glory to myself. And he is not afraid to get glory to himself. In verse 15, he describes his actions as treading the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Brothers and sisters, let us not underplay those words. Could you bear to be a grape under the foot of infinity? Could you bear infinite fierceness? When almighty God pulls out his arm, will you be strong at that time? Will your boastings then have anything? Will our religion avail us in that day? These things will happen. I know today it is common to say, I don't have a religion, I have a relationship. But if you'll read the old Puritans, they commonly said, religion as a good word. I'm using it that way. He comes back and he dominates and conquers. In verse 19, 
He returns and all the kings of the earth see him. In verse 21, he destroys them by himself. In chapter 20, we have this thousand years only found here in chapter 20. But there's another phrase that's only found here. The lake of fire is found five times in the Bible. and It's only found, if you have my particular edition, on this page. But either way, it's similar. It's, It's within 25 verses or so. The only time you find lake of fire is in this section. The only time you find thousand years is in this section. Well, the thousand years might be a long age. Then why isn't the lake of fire, as Billy Graham said, a painful darkness in our hearts? Close quote from Moody Magazine. I have that magazine if you want me to send you the picture. If a thousand years isn't a thousand, then why is a lake of fire not a lake of fire? Interestingly, the literal hermeneutic or the normal hermeneutic that produces all of these metaphors and images and makes sense of this book as it is read grammatically is under attack from Genesis, which our pastor preached excellently on Wednesday. I highly encourage you all to be out this coming Wednesday night. But it attacks uh, creation on the first page. It attacks the lake of fire nearly on the last page. It has been my experience that where the lake of fire is not believed and remembered, few missionaries go out. That is not the only motivation for missions. Years ago, if you'll remember, I preached a message here entitled Missions for the Glory of God. And that happened concurrently with my change. I went to Africa largely because of the fear and terror of the lake of fire. But I saw such glory in the scriptures as I was in Africa my first year or two, that when I returned, I preached on the glory of God here from this pulpit. Because it is the glory of God that is the greatest battery. It is the greatest energy. But just because that is the greatest, we must not forget all the motivations that God has put in his word. And I wonder, are there any more missionaries to be sent out from Bethel? How old is the church? 60, 70 years old? I know you sent out Forrest McPhail. You sent out our family. Is there another family that has grown up here and been sent out? Brothers and sisters, the Bible records these heavy truths, this lake of fire, this rule of Christ, this returning and reigning, ultimately the glory in chapters 21 and 22. Have we diluted the words of scripture or have we neglected to meditate and refresh our souls on the wonder and glory of scripture? May God raise up from Bethel young men to go. I've not asked for 18 years for teammates, but I'm asking for teammates, Jason McVeigh. I'm calling for young men to say, let me give my life to reach the poorest of the poor in the hardest of the areas. And if you say, I know you, Seth, I couldn't get along with your personality. It's a big place. Move three hours away. I'm serious. You need the best and the sharpest and the smartest to say, I couldn't do it, but let me try. Oh, God, give me your spirit that somehow we might see 40 or 50 Zongas come to Christ because there is a lake of fire and there is a second coming and there is an economic and political and religious, political and religious system that will dominate the world and maybe at this time is being raised up. 
Brothers and sisters, I wanted to draw your attention to this today, however poorly I am following my notes or the time or the text, to draw your attention to these realities that it might sober us because that is why chapters 19 to 22 was recorded in the Bible so that our laughter would be turned into mourning as James chapter 4 says. So we would say there are great realities afoot far greater than the 17th Avenger movie. We need to turn our minds and our hearts to the great realities and we need to dominate our lives by our religion, the one true religion of loving God with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds and all our strengths. We need to go back into history and find the greatest examples of men and women who loved God and who knew God and if they're Methodists or Anglicans, if they're Baptists or Anabaptists, if they're the early church or the early church fathers, we need to take the good from all of those and say, God helping me, I'll stand on the shoulders of those great men, I'll believe these truths and I will do what I can in the place that I'm at for God's glory. Revelation chapter 20 records the thousand years. The first three verses are the Satan being bound. The next three verses are the rule of the saints on earth. You'll notice, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw all through the text. These are consecutive events, one following on the other. Another reason why we must believe that Satan is not yet bound, but he will be bound in the future is in verse 3. Look at verse 3, 23. He is bound for a reason so that he should not deceive who? Look, look in chapter 20, verse 3. Who's he not going to deceive anymore? The nations. Look down at chapter 20, verse 8. Now he's loosed, 28. He will go out to deceive whom in verse 8? Yes, if he was bound today, the people will say, oh, nations there means Christians. Just take your pen and write, I'm not telling you to do this, I'm telling you what other views would say. They'll say in verse 3, chapter 20, verse 3, nations means Christians. That's both ah and post-millennialists. He can't deceive the Christians today. Well, I've seen a lot of deceived Christians. But then look in verse 8, he's actually loosed to go deceive the Christians then, if that's correct. If nations in verse 3 means Christians, what does nations mean in verse 8? Well, it's a recapitulate. Follow the grammar. You're smart enough for this. You don't need a PhD from Duke Divinity School. You need to read the text with a pen. Our Lord will rule, and the millennium is important. It demonstrates the doctrine of total depravity, and it vindicates Christ's rule on this earth. Christ has dominated spiritually in the hearts of his people. Have you ever met a woman who is so much like Christ, it was a joy to be with her? Have you ever met someone like that? I married someone like that. Have you ever met a man who was so filled with the word of God, you thought it was an honor to get, to get his advice? That's Christ ruling in the heart. When have you ever seen Christ dominate in politics and economics and aesthetics? He will in this thousand years. In chapter 21, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 11 to 15 is the text that David read for us this morning. The great white throne where these people are judged twice according to their works. That's another reference to this synergistic sanctification. God and man working together. Here, these men had no help from God. And so their works are entirely evil and damn their souls to eternal fire.
In chapter 21, he sees heaven. I'll just read briefly a list, helping you next time you read it to underline these things in your Bible. In chapter 21, here's the things that are not in heaven. You can mark these when you read, no sea, no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain, no temple, no sun, no night, no sin, no curse. Chapter 21 records 10 things that are there. There's a city, there's a light, there's wall, there's clear gold, golden streets, earthly kings, earthly kings, even Sangha kings, and cultural glory and a river and a tree and God's servants. By the way, Believers are not called believers in the entire book of Revelation. They're not called Christians or believers. They're called either saints. That's people who are holy or they are called servants, active people. In the epistles, the most, do, the most common name is believers. In the epistle of Galatians and others of Paul's epistles, it's believers. But in Revelation, the subject has shifted. John the apostle wrote the gospel of John and 93 times in that gospel, he used the verb pistuo, to believe. And the subject or the object of that verb is Jesus Christ 93 times in the book of John. But when John turns around and writes Revelation at the end, he says, there's another side to this. You are justified by faith in Christ. But when it comes to Revelation and the end of the story, I think of you as a servant and as a holy one. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, are you a believer Question two, are you a servant and a holy one? That's what the end of the story tells us. And we ought not to forget it. I close with this. Chapter 22, verse 12. And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me. To give to every man according as his work shall be. Does that offend you? I love the doctrine of justification by faith. I preach the doctrine of justification by faith in an entire sermon-length sermon for 1 John 2, 1 and 2 from this pulpit in 2018. That's what I preach on the streets in Africa. It's justification by faith, but there is here in this 12th verse this reward for those who are working. And I ask you, are you prepared for that verse? If his return was today, would he have a reward for you? He is coming quickly. He says it at least seven times in Revelation. Soon, quickly, immediately. When he comes, will he find you ready? Or as he says in Luke chapter 18, will the Son of Man find faith? Will he find faith with you? The word of God to your soul today is to let the end of the story control you now because in love and mercy, he told us the end before it happened. It would be no love to hide it. It is great love to tell us and even make it easy by putting it at the end. Oh, dear Jesus, come and do the work in our hearts to save a sinner who is out of Christ today. Convert our children Convert visitors. Save those who are not yet members but ought to be. Build up your people and grant that we might have faith. That our eyes might see the glory of Christ as a lamb and as a lion. As a judge and as a warrior. Save your people, we pray, and strengthen us for every good work. May we be built up. And may the blessing of God and the power of God come in this assembly. For Jesus' sake, amen.